The scripture lesson for today is Mark 15, uh, 16 through 21, and I'll be reading from the New International Version of the Bible. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So just a few weeks ago, back in, in January, the Peterses took a trip to Washington, D.C. One of the highlights of our trip was a visit to Mount Vernon. We went out to see George Washington's home, the, the place on earth where he felt the most relaxed and the most content. It's, it's an amazing place to visit. I'm going to recommend that everybody put it on your agenda, put it on your bucket list, a trip to, to Mount Vernon. They have all of these incredible artifacts and objects that give you insight into the, the life of America's first president. Of all of the amazing items that they had there, though, the thing that was, was most impressive to me, the thing that... That, that stuck with me and, and I thought was most interesting was a, a sketch, a simple sketch of, of pencil on paper. In 1796, a, a young architect named Benjamin Henley Latrobe came to Mount Vernon to stay with George and Martha Washington. People were always showing up at George Washington's front door, and they would just expect him to entertain them and feed them and, and put them up for as long as they wanted to stay. And, and George Washington was a good sport about this sort of thing. He, he saw it as part of his duty as president to entertain people and to accommodate them and, and be accessible to people. And so sometimes people would stay at at Mount Vernon for, for weeks at a time, dining at the Washington's table. And so one day this young architect shows up at George Washington's front door and, and just makes himself at home. And one night after dinner, George and Martha Washington and this young architect, Latrobe, they, they went out back of the house. Now, behind Mount Vernon, there's a sort of a, a porch called, called the Piazza. That's what the Washingtons called it. And the Piazza is the most beautiful spot in, in all of Mount Vernon. The, the lawn behind the house just falls away, and there's this, this sweeping panoramic view of the Potomac River. And, and when you stand there, you can see why George Washington loved every evening after dinner to just go out to the Piazza and sit and drink coffee and enjoy the view. That's what they did one night after supper. Benjamin Henley Retrobe and, and George and Martha Washington went out behind the house and they sat on the piazza and, and they drank coffee. 
And as they were sitting there drinking coffee, there was something about the light, there was something about the scene that made this young architect want to capture it. And so he took out his, his notepad and he started sketching. And he, he sketched George Washington sitting there in his chair looking both heroic and relaxed both at the same time. And he, he drew Martha Washington sipping, sipping her coffee. And then in the sketch behind the table and off to the side, Benjamin Henley Latrobe drew another figure. There was a man standing behind the table and, and off to the side, standing and waiting, a man with, with dark skin. That man was probably Frank Lee. Frank Lee was, was George Washington's enslaved butler. Now, George Washington had purchased Frank Lee some 30 years before this sketch was made. He started out as, as a waiter at the Mount Vernon estate, and then as, as George Washington discovered how smart and how capable he was, he gave Frank Lee more and more responsibility until eventually he was the butler in charge of the entire home. Frank Lee was the person who met guests when they arrived at the front door. He was the person who oversaw the, the cleaning and the care of the house. He was the person who, who looked after George Washington's hunting dogs. And in the evenings after dinner, he was the person who poured the coffee out on the piazza. That's what he's doing in this sketch. Frankly, is standing just to the back and off to the side waiting to, waiting to pour the coffee. And the thing that makes this sketch so interesting, the thing that, that makes this, this sketch so compelling is that Benjamin Henry, Henry Latrobe didn't just let it remain a sketch. He used that sketch as the basis for a painting. After he left Mount Vernon, he took that sketch and he turned it into a, into a painting of that scene. And it is one of the most valuable and one of the most historically important paintings of George Washington that was ever made. It's the, the only painting of George and Martha Washington at Mount Vernon that was made from real life by an artist who actually witnessed the scene. And, and, and this painting is so significant that just a couple of years ago, the Mount Vernon estate actually bought it at auction for $600,000. And now the painting hangs on a wall at Mount Vernon right next to the original sketch. And if you go to Mount Vernon and if you stand in front of that wall and if you look carefully at the sketch and if you compare it to the painting, you will notice, you will notice one important difference. If you look at the painting, you'll see, if you look closely, you'll see there's George Washington looking heroic and relaxed just like he does in the sketch. And, and there's Martha Washington sipping her coffee just like she's doing in the sketch. But if you look behind the table and off to the side. If you look at the place where in the original sketch, Frank Lee is standing waiting to pour the coffee in the painting, there's only empty space. At some point in, in creating this painting, at some point in turning the scene, the sketch into a work of art, Benjamin Henry Latrobe decided that Frank Lee was not part of the story that he wanted to tell. He wasn't part of the, the scene that he wanted to paint. And so he simply erased Frank Lee from the scene. He simply made Frank Lee disappear. And this, this moment I had as I was standing in front of those paintings, this thought occurred to me. I suddenly said to myself, this is exactly why we have Black History Month. This is why America needs to have a Black History Month because people of color have been part of the American story from the very beginning, but over and over again, their stories have been forgotten. They have literally been taken out of the painting, literally removed from the frame. African American history is part of our story as well. Black History Month is, is our chance to tell the whole story. We have Black History Month because if you go to American museums, if you look at the art, if you look at the paintings, what you'll see is art and paintings that send 
send a powerful, unspoken message, art and paintings that say only light-skinned people matter, only light-skinned people are important and beautiful and worth remembering. Black History Month is when we correct that error, when we tell the whole of the story. And that brings me to the question I want to ask this morning, a difficult and uncomfortable question. What story are we telling? What unspoken message are we sending through the art, through the pictures, through the paintings that we hang on the walls of our churches? I never thought very much about all of the things that we hang on the walls of churches until a few years ago when I was having a a conversation with a friend of mine. This friend, a a pastor, a black woman, she helped me see something that I'd never seen before. As we were talking over coffee, she said to me, she said, you know, whenever I go to a new church, whenever I'm visiting a new church, the first thing I notice, the first thing I look at is, is the art and the pictures that are hanging on the walls. And she said, usually when I go to a new church, the first thing I see is the, the wall of fame where they hang the pictures of all the pastors that the church has ever had. And she said, in so many churches, when I walk through the door and I see that wall of fame, the wall of fame is just filled with row after row of, of white men with gray beards. And then she says, I wander the halls of the church and I like to poke my head into the Sunday school classrooms because that's where they, they hang the paintings and the murals of, of scenes from the Bible and Bible stories. And she said, in so many churches, those Scenes from the Bible, those Bible stories, the paintings and the murals are filled with only light-skinned people. And then she says, I go into the sanctuary and I look up at these beautiful stained glass windows, she said. And in so many churches, these stained glass windows are filled, filled only with light-skinned people. And she said, in so many churches I go to, in so many places I visit, before I even sit down in a pew, before anybody has even read the call to worship, already, she said, I have this feeling of unbelonging. I have this feeling that I am not a part of this church's family photo album. I have a feeling that I am not a part of the story that this church tells about itself. I have a feeling that I am not a part of the story that this church tells about God's love. And she said, no matter how warm and friendly a church might be, no amount of handshaking, no amount of hugs can ever quite erase that feeling of unbelonging. And conversations like that are the reason why we at Court Street Church are celebrating Black History Month. Conversations like that are the reason why our trustees now, as they redecorate various parts of the church, are making an effort to find images and pictures and paintings of people of color to hang them on the, on the walls of our church. Conversations like that are the reason why it is so important for us to know and remember stories like the story in this morning's gospel reading. In this morning's gospel reading, we have the story of this, this man named Simon. Simon is an African man who plays an important part in the most important story in the Bible. And we don't know very much about about this man named Simon. The Bible only tells us two things about him, but those two things allow us to connect the dots and tell a fascinating story, a compelling story. The first thing we know about Simon is that Simon is from a place called Cyrene. Cyrene is on the coast of Africa. It's from the the part of Africa that today we would call Libya. And, and, And in that time in Cyrene, there was a large population of Jews. There were thousands of of Jews, dark-skinned Jews and light-skinned Jews living living in Cyrene. And so probably Simon was, was one of these Jewish people who had traveled all the way from North Africa to come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Passover festival. 
Now, chances are that this was a once-in-a-lifetime trip for Simon. It was 900 miles from Cyrene to Jerusalem. It would have been a, a long and difficult journey. It would have taken him at least a month to travel from, from Cyrene to Jerusalem. He would have spent a, a small fortune to get all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it took him longer than he thought it was going to to get there. In the last few days of travel, he was afraid that he wasn't going to make it to Jerusalem on time. But he arrived He arrived at the city just just, just in time, as he spotted the walls of the city as he was making his way down the road, he, he got there just as they were beginning the preparations for the Passover festival. And so Simon started walking a little bit faster. He wanted to get into the city. He wanted to go to the temple. He wanted to be in the house of God and stand among God's people and be a part of this, this great big religious festival that was about to begin. But as he tried to push his way into the city, Simon discovered that it was hard. It was hard to make his way along the road. It was hard to get into the city that day. The, the roads were filled with people and there was some sort of a, of a procession going on. And as Simon tries to push his way into the city, suddenly he finds himself pushed off to the side of the road by a group of people who are coming in the opposite direction. He sees that a, a group of soldiers are leading a group of criminals out to be executed. He sees that these men are, are carrying heavy pieces of wood on their shoulders. In the time of Jesus, when, when someone was about to be crucified, they would carry not the, the whole of the cross, but just the, the horizontal piece, the crossbar out to the place of, of crucifixion. That was a big, heavy, solid piece of wood. The crossbar on Jesus' shoulders would have weighed about 75 pounds. And as the group of criminals made their way just past the place where, where Simon was standing, suddenly one of them stumbled and fell. And that piece of wood, it fell to the ground. And the soldiers who are leading these, these prisoners out to their execution, they're angry and they're impatient. And so one of the soldiers looks around to see if there's anybody he can press into service. And he spots this foreign-looking man standing in the crowd. And he says, you, yes, you, pick up that cross and get moving. And suddenly Simon finds himself pushed forward to the front of the crowd. He feels the hand of that, that Roman soldier on his shoulder pushing down. And he looks down at the ground and he sees this, this piece of wood covered in this stranger's blood and his heart sinks. This is the worst possible thing that could have happened to Simon on his way into the city. Because as he looks at that, that piece of wood covered in this stranger's blood, he realizes as soon as he touches that piece of wood, as soon as he picks up that piece of wood covered in blood, he is going to become ritually unclean. And he won't be allowed to enter the temple for another 24 hours. And he won't be allowed to participate in any religious festivals for another 24 hours. He will have to avoid all human contact for the next 24 hours because anyone who he touches will also become unclean. As he looks down at that heavy piece of wood, Simon suddenly realizes that he is not going to get to do the one thing he came to Jerusalem to do. He's not going to be able to do the thing he traveled 900 miles and spent a small fortune in order to do. His heart sinks, but he has no choice. And so Simon picks up that piece of wood and he begins walking up the hill. And we don't know exactly what happens to, to Simon after this moment, but the Bible gives us one tantalizing clue. Here's the other thing that we know about Simon. In the Gospel of Mark, when Simon is introduced, the writer of the Gospel of Mark introduces him this way. He says, there was a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And that is a weird way to introduce somebody in the Gospel. Rufus and Alexander are not part of this, this story at all. And we've never heard of Rufus and Alexander. 
Alexander, the only reason that the writer of the Gospel of Mark would introduce Simon in this way is if he assumed that the people he was writing this book about Jesus for already knew who Rufus and Alexander were. The only reason that the writer of the Gospel of Mark would introduce Simon in this way is if Rufus and Alexander were part of the church that he was writing this Gospel for. Now, historians and Bible scholars tell us that the, the Gospel of Mark was probably written for the Christians who lived in the city of Rome. And there is one other tantalizing clue in the New Testament about what happens, what happens to Simon after this moment. In his letter to the Christians who are living in Rome, in Paul's letter to the Romans, at the very end of the letter, before he closes the letter, Paul says, oh, and one more thing. Say hi to Rufus for me. And say hi to his, his mother. You know, she's also been like a mother to me. And those clues, those dots allow us to finish Simon's story. We don't know exactly what happened to Simon for the rest of that day. We do know that even though he didn't get to go into the temple and celebrate the Passover festival, he had an encounter with God that day. As he was carrying the cross up the hill, he saw something in the face of this man whose cross he was carrying. He stuck around and watched as Jesus died. He maybe heard the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. He maybe felt the ground shake when Jesus breathed his last breath. Maybe Maybe Simon even stuck around in the city of Jerusalem for a few days and got to witness the resurrection. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't know exactly how it happened. But somehow, before Simon left the city of Jerusalem, he had been transformed by this encounter of Jesus. He was a believer in Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. He took the name and the story of God's love in Jesus back with him 900 miles to the city of Cyrene. And his wife became a believer. And his sons became believers. And the family became leaders in the church. They became missionaries and evangelists and traveled all the way to Rome to share the story of God's love in Jesus. And, and as, I, as I tell this story, there's one thing I haven't told you yet. There's one thing I haven't mentioned, a detail that we don't know. All of the things I just told you, we can fairly safely say about Simon just by connecting the dots. There's one thing that we don't know about Simon, one thing the gospel doesn't tell us, and that's what Simon looked like. And we don't know if he had dark skin we don't know if he had light skin, but I will tell you that when I hear this story, when I read this story in the Gospel of Mark, I choose to picture, I choose to picture Simon with dark skin. I choose to picture him as a dark-skinned African follower of Jesus. And, and if I were a painter, if I were going to paint this scene, that's how I would paint Simon. I would paint him as a man with dark skin, as a dark-skinned African man carrying the cross of Christ. And I hope that from now on, whenever you hear this story, whenever you read this story, you in your own mind will picture Simon as a man with dark skin. Why is it important that we do that? Because, because this is one powerful and unspoken way that we can finish God's story of God's love. This is a way that we can tell the world the whole truth about God's love. This is a way that we can say to the world that, that black people matter, that black lives matter, that not just light-skinned stories are worth telling. This is one way we can say to the world that, that dark-skinned people have been part of the story of God's love from the very beginning. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to tell the whole story. Not just in the words that we say, not just in the things that we do, but in the pictures, the images, the paintings, the stained glass windows that we, we place in a church. And God, we pray that no one would ever have a sense or a feeling of unbelonging in this place. God, we pray that, that our church family photo album would re reflect all the colors of your people. God, we pray that this would be a place where your dream for your family is lived out in the flesh. In Jesus we pray. Amen.